And in the process of the next like two years, two open cases with the DEA, um, I had my door kicked in one time uh, and I sleep naked. And so <laughs> it was so funny because I got a knock on my door in my, in my apartment and my, my, my roommate at the time was like, wait, you know, I need you to get up. And I was like, nah, bro, like I don't have class today. And he's like, no, wait, it's time to get up. And I knew in my head, like, what was going on. Oh. So I got up. And as I stood out of my bed right in the doorway, door gets kicked in. Two men down on their knees and, like, a heavy black cop woman, gun drawn at me. Oh and my, my dick God. is just out. My dick's just out. Well, Wade, I mean, that's a good place to start. Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Montpelier, Virginia. Um, the boonies. Um, I grew up in about as country of a place as you could find in the United States. Sometimes people are like, oh, Virginia's not the South, but uh, I was 15, 17 minutes from the nearest gas station growing up. Sheesh. Uh, <laughs> my dad is like Bear Grylls on crack. My, <laughs> about 90% of what I consumed growing up was either hunted or fished or, or, oh, or, fire. or, uh, or gardened. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, man, people you know jacked up trucks and Confederate flags. I'm not super proud of that, but... <laughs> Um, you know, it's definitely a part of who I am. Do you like the internet in Virginia? My grandma was just, uh, she loved the, the next technology. Really? She, yeah, she was on DSL early. Like, kids wow. in the neighborhood were pissed, right? <laughs> Is she still around? Um, believe it or not, yes. Damn. I can't, I can't believe it. She's overweight. She's diabetic. Holy shit. <laughs> and she's hanging on. <laughs> Is she on NFTs yet? <sighs> I don't think she's going to get there. Yeah, damn. To be honest right. with you. God bless you, every man. So. Okay, so you got on the internet early, and like, what was like, what were you doing on the internet? Well, because I had to come when I would come home from school and stuff like that. Like, I would go to baseball practice, but for the most part, like, in fifth grade, in sixth and seventh and eighth grade, I would come home and I would like, I would have to take care of my grandma, and my great grandma. I had to make them, you know, dinner and 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 things like that. So I didn't really have the ability. Like, I had to stay inside, kind of, right? Mm-hmm. And so the internet, like, the computer was my thing. I took computer. Uh, 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 computer repair class in middle school and so i was like taking apart you know computers and rebuilding them and i just loved it and i was also uh, a beast my clan my starcraft crew uh we used to merc merc heads you're talking to two koreans i my know boy. i never I played feel, starcraft. I, like oh, like, I have some respect yeah i know i mean have you but, ever played korean starcraft players dude it is a whole nother world i i don't know but i do remember quite you know Quite vividly, you know, me and my like three homies in the neighborhood just running, running Zerg trains on everybody <laughs> and people just screaming like obscen- obscenities, yeah. you know? Did you evolve to League of Legends afterwards? No. Never? Never. What about Counter-Strike? Uh, we did. So yeah. in computer service and repair class, right, it was a year-long class. Mm-hmm. Everyone knew. It takes about a third of the year to build a computer. And then Mr. Wood was his name. Mm-hmm. Mr. Wood would just sit there, and everyone would put Counter-Strike on. And for, the, like, the last two-thirds of the year, we would play Counter-Strike in class. So I was, wow. pretty, Bro, I was pretty good at Counter-Strike. Those teachers are, like, Dude, the God's the gift to Earth. Oh, my God. It was amazing. I also played this game called Dope Wars. I don't know if you guys remember that. No. Dope you remember Wars. Dope Wars? Dope Wars was a website. My, uh, Machiavelli. You, like, had... It was crazy. Mm-hmm. Wild. So, oh, oh, this is crazy. So, my middle... My, my, my county, Henrico County in Virginia, was the first county in the country... When, when Apple came out with the, with the MacBooks, my county did a deal with Apple. Every middle schooler and every high schooler got a MacBook. What? Right? To take home? Everyone. They get, we were the first ones in the county. It was, it was abso- it were the first ones in the, in the country. It was wild, right? And my mom tells the story to, to this day. So uh, because I was good with computers, 
when you would go to school, the Wi-Fi would have at our school or the, the, the whatever, the DSL or whatever the fuck it was, would have you know, measures on what you couldn't do. Mm. I figured out the hack around it, and then I started selling the hack to people at school. Oh, my God. And then my mom got a call one day that was like, yo, your son is, like, getting around our firewalls and everything and selling it to kids. Oh, my God. And my God. mom to this day is just like, yo, like, I wanted to be mad, but, like, all I could do was laugh. <laughs> I would be <laughs> you know? proud as fuck if my child, if yeah. I got that call about my child. Yeah. That's amazing. What the yeah. fuck? So are you, like, do you, do you know how to program and stuff like that? Not really anymore. Like, it's not what I'm focused on. It's not what I spend time on. Like, I think mm -hmm. if I... I used to be really good with HTML early. Uh, I so also sold MySpace layouts to kids when MySpace was popping. Um, I sold my lunches. I went to a, a Catholic school early before that. For my first entrepreneurial thing was I went to a Catholic school, and it was a bunch of rich kids. Mm -hmm. I was the only kid in the whole grade that didn't go to church on Sunday. So I was like an oddball. And Sit my up. parents were, you know... My parents had me at 22 and 23. Uh, and uh, uh, they would send me like little Debbie snacks, you know, ho-hos and fucking all that shit. And no one else's parents were like, they were so conscious, like, no, not sweets. So I started selling my little Debbie snacks. <laughs> so you're like a natural born entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. CEO entrepreneur. Are you doing anything entrepreneurial right now? Yeah, I think is so. Is that the artist management is like that? 100%. Okay. I mean, it's like every artist is a different business. Mm -hmm. um, I'm building my own label. You know, I, I'm, I have two partners and we're in the process of building like the world that, you know, we're proud of and, and the culture that we're proud of and that we want to create. And, um, you know, I, I kind of realized that like I'm not in music because I want to be famous. I don't want to be famous. I'm not in music because I want to have like yachts and shit. Like I don't give a fuck about any of that. I want to have house. I love a pond, I love a little bit of land, a garden, my dogs, and I'm happy. And a couple of boyfriends. A couple of boyfriends. Yep. Um, hey, so let's stay on this topic. What was your first foray into music? Because it kind of ties into your, not, your, inter, your access to the internet. And, well, damn, actually, because prior to that, it's very interesting of like how you, the story of your college life, when your baseball career ended, and how that led you into music and your other entrepreneurial ventures. Today is actually a very special day, or this week. You, you texted me something. Oh, yeah. What did I? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, What's yeah. today? Uh, well, well um, July 7th, 2013 is when I got here. So To, to L.A.? Uh, or, yes. So I guess that's eight years. I'm bad at math. Um, but I think seven years, I was like telling Jeremy, like, I think it's perfect time to talk because I think seven years is like, the most extensive uh, statute of limitations mm. on anything. Mm. So I can like, I feel like I can finally sort of talk about the things that I've been a part of, but um, which is some crazy stories. But yeah, I uh, <clears throat> I was in college, and I went to college. In, I graduated in 2008. Went to college in 2008, and that's when the housing market crashed, and my parents, you know, kind of lost a lot, all their 401ks, everything, and so I kind of got put in a position where I had to take care of myself in college work full-time, try to go to school. I wasn't equipped for any of that. And I was going to school in South Carolina at the time. And in South Carolina, there was dirt weed. Dirt Is this in college in South Carolina? Correct, in Coastal Carolina, Myrtle Beach. Mm -hmm. um, so there was dirt weed. And that was the first place that it started because like, I don't smoke dirt weed. And so I was like, where can I find good weed? And, and there was a little sect of hippies, and I started going to Asheville, North Carolina, which mm -hmm. is like the hippie capital of the East Coast, mm -hmm. southern East Coast. 
and I started bringing in a bunch of good weed, selling good weed. I thought I was like a martyr, you know. I'm like, oh, I'm just getting kids better drugs, you know. And then that was a little expensive, and the weed wasn't the best. So I brokered a deal where I started shipping in two pounds a week, and I would pay somebody three or $400 different address each time to get it shipped to them. And I'm not talking like a box, like a box. Like I'm talking about this shit would get shipped in like one of those, like the, the bags. And the bags were just bulging. Like it was obviously weed. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> obviously weed, but it was like, yo, that's not the most protective way to do this. And <laughs> yeah, now they vacuum seal it, wrap yep. it and shit. Put like, it in like a teddy bear. Yeah. yeah. And like in South Carolina in this time, like, yo, they'll cut your hands off for like a gram of weed, right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of led to me experimenting with other drugs, psychedelics, acid, mushrooms. Um, I started getting into dance music and then finding SAS from Canada and shipping SAS from Canada. Uh, there was a point where I was a, a broker for probably at the time maybe the largest uh, I- I- imported shipment of ecstasy ever maybe in Holy South Carolina. Shit. <laughs> uh, like qu- uh, three quarter of a million dollars. I didn't. I literally just put the two people together. Okay, so okay, so you. Oh, I thought you dropped three quarters. No, I was too scared for that. Okay. I, I will say, like, for all my idioc- idiocy, uh-huh. I've always sort of known the line, mm. you know, mm. like, um, I always, like, knew, like, mm, you know, I'll take Maybe my, I shouldn't I'll do take this. my little finder's fee, mm-hmm. you know? I feel that. So, so you're telling me that selling weed, you wanted to sell good weed in college, and that led you to mm-hmm. almost a million-dollar deal. To sell, yeah, then I just wanted to sell, you know, good drugs to people because I was getting it for myself, mm-hmm. and I figured if I sold it to other people, they were having better drugs. I knew that they weren't getting bad ones, mm-hmm. and I would start getting my drugs for free. Remember, I'm mm-hmm. paying for all my own shit, mm-hmm. and I was developing a, a, a drug addiction at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I said, mm-hmm. blew out my knee in high school, you know, wrestling i was a very competitive wrestler i was a very competitive baseball player i grew up playing baseball with russell wilson the quarterback of the seahawks really uh and jackie bradley the on the same team or like you were playing yes. in the same league yes oh, so russell cool. and i grew up playing on the same team together um and then called diamond dogs and then he's that guy who's like he's always living his high school glory days 100 low key though and i played I'll around play. a bunch of like you know jackie bradley the last time i pitched against jackie bradley's uh he's the center fielder for the red sox right now uh and i pitched against his legion team because his legion team was trash mm-hmm. uh and uh, i threw three pitches to him in two at bats and he hit two home runs off me damn uh, <laughs> hilarious that's not dude. proud i would be oh, proud I'm of that so, i'm so happy i got that story dog uh but in the moment you're probably like fuck yeah <laughs> but i blew out my knee in high school and i never swallowed a pill up until age of 16 or 17 i was scared that i was gonna choke on him uh truthfully like i wouldn't do advil nothing and when i blew out my knee i got a full knee reconstruction and uh the doctor i remember him he goes oh, he's like I'm like, I can't swallow pills. He's like, oh, you're going to want to swallow these. And I'm like, okay. Yep. And my mom's like, you're going to want to swallow these. And I'm like, okay. And they gave me Percocets. Oh, my God. And I, first of all, I think the opioid epidemic in America is absurd. And I've seen the, the, the detriment of what that is. But that was the, the, the beginning of a downward spiral for me. I mean, dude, I would get refills like there was nothing. And, uh, cause I, and, and I would literally be in English, AP English class, my best friend Tyler, 
And I would just put out like four Percocets and be cracking them in half, giving one to him, eating them, feeling a million bucks. My English teacher loved me. Like we were reading The Fountainhead. And it, she'd be like, who has something to say about The Fountainhead? And everybody would be quiet. And I'd be so high on Percocet. I'd be like, <laughs> I do. i get like a critical analysis about The Fountainhead. She loved me. Pretty sure Miss... She, Miss, uh, Miss Forehand, she disappeared halfway through the year. We think that she was doing Xanax and shit, too. Oh, my God. Yeah, kind of crazy. Just two loopy druggies. Just 100%. Like, just bounding over the fountainhead. <laughs> uh, but then I, you know, then, I went to, then I went to college, went through some rough days, started selling drugs, dropped out, became an addict, too. Like, I didn't know I was an addict because I wasn't stealing people's shit, you know, to, like, f- get my fix. I was, like, I sort of dominated the weed sector and I was making money and then I was pretty much what happened was uh, I was bringing in weed from California which nobody else was doing and I cornered the market because it was so much better Mm. I would get like 18 gram nugs still wet and you know my homie I'm not gonna say his name my homie I'll say it seven years my homie (laughs) name and address my homie who (laughs) my homie who I kind of cut out of the business because I had the better weed I was just like yo bro like you're you're the dude like Look, I'll, I'll give you weed. I'll give you my shit. No, no upcharge, no anything, but, like, give me a Roxy each day, right? Which is, like, the little blue Roxy's. What's a Roxy? Roxy Roxy's, like, Oxycontin, uh, okay. essentially. Like, okay. no, no, um, no, infe- uh, um, clean cut medical straight heroin. Coding, straight coating. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I was, like, ripping one of those a day, dating a girl that we both kind of went into a spiral, um, and in the process of the next, like, two years, I had my, you know, D, two, two, two open cases with the DEA. Um, I had my door kicked in one time, uh, and I sleep naked. And so <laughs> it was so funny because I got a knock on my door in my, in my apartment, and I didn't have class on Monday when, or Tuesday, Thursday. And my, my, my roommate at the time was like, wait, you know, I need you to get up. And I was like, nah, bro, like, I don't have class today. And he's like, no, wait, it's time to get up. And I knew in my head, like, what was going on. Oh. So I got up. And as I stood out of my bed right in the doorway, they, I guess they heard me moving. Door gets kicked in. It's fucking two men down on their knees and, like, a heavy black cop woman gun drawn at me. Oh and my, my dick is God. just out. My dick's just out. Okay? They said, don't move. And I'm like, I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere. I got nowhere to go. My dick is out. So I put on your clothes. And so I, like, bend down. Like, my room's a mess. I got clothes everywhere. Luckily, there was a pair of shorts right there. And I grabbed the shorts. I'll never forget. Like, I had to decide, like, do I bend, like, forward? Or do I give them the dick or the ass? I tried to slide over into, like, the bathroom area. And they were like, do not go over there. And I'm like, I'm just trying, like, trying not to, like, give you guys the spread. <laughs> Truthfully. He's like, I'm just trying to grab my gun. And anyways, what had happened was they had planted. Uh, I failed out of college my freshman year. I was going to community college to try to get back in. They had planted a, a confidential informant in my class in community college. And he had, you know, talked to me about weed. And we had gone out to the uh, um, parking lot one time. He the showed me some. What the fuck was this guy's name? I don't remember. But um, he had showed me some. He was like, show me some weed. And then I was like, yeah, if you need some weed, hit me up. He hits me up, and, and one day he hits me up. He's like, can I get a couple grams? And I didn't answer him. I don't know if I was zonked out or whatever, tr- chasing some girls or some shit. But then, like, I didn't answer him. And out of nowhere, he's like, I actually want, like, a pound. And I'm like, nah, that's a little hot. You coming in hot. Mm-hmm. So I didn't answer him. Well, what happened was they encouraged. It was a 40-day case. They were actually staking me out from the, uh, the, the shit on the other side. And they knocked, he knocked on the door. My roommate, JP, answered the door. He said, Wade sent me. My roommate sold him a gram. He had a, a camera in his hat, in his hat bill, and a mic on him. 
JP, they, the cops met JP three days later in his class, took him to the shit, gave him two felonies, took him out of school, and that's when he knocked on my door that morning. And uh, I was only selling weed at that point. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then after that, I said, I'll never sell drugs again. That was a lie. Then I got into selling all the drugs. That's when I started getting into other wild shit and becoming more entrepreneur with it. But I had three rules uh, when I sold drugs after that first time. First rule, always have proof of cash income. Second rule, only sell to people you know. Third rule, have an exit strategy. And in Conway, South Carolina at the time, there was one judge uh, who was also a history teacher at the school. Mm. And that judge was Monday through Thursday, was doing everything from traffic court to sentencing people to murder because they do that shit in the South. Damn. And I realized, like, yo, uh, he probably, it's probably a stressful job. So he probably goes and gets a drink after his Thursday shift. No, no court on Friday. So I just sort of wait outside. Sure enough, he goes to the bar around the corner. I got a job at the bar. And for a year and a half, I barbacked at that bar and became friends with the judge, knowing that if I got in trouble, I would need an exit strategy and I had proof of cash income. So when it got hot the second time, I said, I need help. And he said, what you need? I was like, I got warrants out for my arrest and shit. And he was like, uh, meet me in my courtroom on Tuesday. I was the first name called in this courtroom on Tuesday. I walked up, said, wait, I'm going to clear you, but I can't promise I can ever do this again. I suggest that you leave. And that's when I dropped out of school, moved back home. And when I moved back home, uh, oh God, my how parents. Do you, how do you? At 21. Literally, so actually. You should have been a junior. You should have been finishing right college. Right around my 21st birthday. I went to college when I was 17. So, yeah. um, but I was like there for like three and a half years, and I only really gotten like three quarters of a year worth of stuff done. And uh, I went back home, and my parents, you know, were not doing well, honestly. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm not going to go to college. I'm not going to get a job. I'm going to start a music blog. I was getting into dance music. And they're like, what the fuck is that? And I'm like, nah, trust me. Wait, but why a blog at the time? Like, what drew you? <sighs> what year was that? What year was that you want to start a dance blog? Yeah, a like dance music blog. About 2011. Okay. And the reason it happened was because... I was really into the internet and really into the dark web. And I was doing <laughs> consulting for like um, on SEO and search mm. engine optimization and, and link cycles for companies on the East Coast that were bootstrapped, that were trying to compete with venture capitalist West Coast companies. Um, a company, I'm not going to say the name because I don't, they're still pumping and I don't want to hurt them, but it was a, an exchange of gift cards where like if you had a $30 Dillard's gift card, and you're like, mom, what the fuck you buy me a $30 Dillard's gift card for? They would buy it from you for 20 and resell it for 23, right? And I was beating all of the West Coast companies that were in that space because I was so good at the internet. Mm. And my, part, my, my, my fraternity brother at the time who got me the job was also really good. Um, started incredibly successful businesses. Uh, was like, look, like I think we should start a dance music blog so we can get free tickets to shows. <laughs> and I was you like, love that Molly. And I was like, that's amazing because I can't afford tickets to shows. And also, like, I'm a digger. I love music. Mm -hmm. I love music. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite thing. I, I, I listen to it all. Top three current artists right now, and we'll go back to that. But like, amazing question. You, yeah, um, current. Uh, number one, best album I've heard of last year is by a girl named Waxahachie. Uh, it's like a, it's like a folk album essentially. Um, and it's, it's, it's impeccable. It's about a girl's, uh, it's about a girl who wrote an album about her, um, her separation from a heroin addiction. 
It's unbelievable. A song called uh, Streets of Philadelphia. Wow. Uh, that's one. Uh, two, the main squeeze. I'm biased. I manage the main squeeze. But I promise you in three years from now, you're going to see them everywhere on every fucking festival in the world. And they are unbelievable, hands down. What type of music? Uh, they, are a, they, they are a genre agnostic, funk, soul, rock and roll band. Mm. They've toured the world for, uh, for, for eight years. They sell thousands of tickets across the country. Um, and, uh, and they drink nectar. And they drink nectar. Oh, they love nectar. Like them already. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then um, uh, maybe my third is this girl from Amsterdam uh, named Erica de Cassier, uh, who makes like really weird, like housey R&B shit. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so your, your buddy is like, let's start a music blog to get free tickets. Mm-hmm. And you guys already understand SEO and yeah. how to like be at the top and so yeah all, and he asked for what year that was that was uh 2011 2011 yeah i kept running the blog and for at 21 years old you know 21 my days went like this i would wake up and i would get my grandma out of bed i'd help her make some food i put her fucking uh you know romantic sexual novel in front of her and turn on the <laughs> television and i would go work a double at maggiano's and then i would come home i'll make her dinner sometimes i would help bathe her which is weird at 21 years old to do for your grandmother. And I would, you know, eat, eat, eat some Adderall and stay up all night and work this music blog. And the dance music blog became, I like to say we were like the sixth biggest dance music <laughs> blog in the world. The top five were Titans, but we were pretty big. Um, what was the name? White Raver Rafting. I'm sure people out there remember. I definitely was on White Ra- Raver Rafting. Yeah. At the time, who was the first? So for me, the first electronic artist that like blew my mind and I realized it was a bigger genre than that cheesy like Euro pop stuff was Justice. What was that for you? Um, pretty Lights. I mean, mm. I've been to like 30-some Pretty Lights shows. I'm obsessed with Pretty Lights. I was like a bass head, bass nectar Pretty Lights. Was my shit. You were an early Wook before Wook was a term. Yeah, yeah 100%. I've been to mad bass nectar shows. 100%, dude. That shit was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I would take my weekends at Hangout Festival and Bass Lights, you know, Bass Lights. And actually, the first ever, the Bass Lights uh, won, technically, what there arguably was in Alpharetta, Georgia. But the actual first ever Bass Lights was in Richmond, Virginia, where I'm from. And that night, Pretty Lights was at the National and Bass Nectar was at uh, the other venue. Uh, um, I'm blanking on the name. And they both finished their sets and they said, everybody, hold on. They switched. They drove about 15 minutes. Uh-huh. They switched sets and gave an extended set. What? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So I saw the first ever original actual Bass Lights. Okay. Um, anyways, so... I'm doing that, working at this, you know, Maggiano's, like taking care of my grandma. And it was just like, you know, I was still a little bit of a drug addict for sure. And, uh, and I was like, I got to get out of here. Like, you know, taking care of my grandma 21, like this is not what I f- saw for myself. Kids are 21, having the time of their life. So I moved down to the city of Richmond. And I moved down to the city of Richmond with this kid whose dad owned the two biggest venues in, in the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Every big concert came through. Two and 2,500 person venues. So all of a sudden, we had access to the back door and free tickets. Mm-hmm. Seems like an opportunity to me. Mm-hmm. Got back into it. Into what? Into selling fucking Molly. Oh, there we CEO go. CEO entrepreneur. To, to, to dance kids. <laughs> okay. And a lot of bad shit started happening for me then. I, I uh, instead of hanging out with degenerates in college... You know, who are like everyone's a degenerate in college, right, bro? 
I was hanging out with degenerates that weren't in college. Kids working at 7-Eleven. No shame mm. to anybody working at 7-Eleven, but they had no dreams. Mm -hmm. That's dark. I came home one night. You know, you got to remember, we're all drugged out all the time. It fucks with your brain. My roommate's girlfriend broke up with him. I come in the door one day. I'm like, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. I open his door. Lights are out. I flick on his lights. He's sitting in the fucking bed with a 9mm in his mouth. I sat down, probably 15, 20 minutes, convinced to take it out of his mouth. Took it. Put it underneath my oven to hide it from him. Forgot it was there. Four months later, we had used the oven so many times, it had melted the plastic oh, shit. to the gun. I still, that gun might still be under that oven. <laughs> um, Someone's baking a pizza to just a fucking gunshot. Truthfully. <laughs> so anyways, I call his dad, and I was like, yo, you got to get him help. It's not good. His dad takes him to rehab. I got an open room. I can't afford the open room, so what do I decide to do? Let's move the cocaine dealer in the house. He moved in with his girlfriend, their dog, and his homie that uh, uh, just needed a place to stay for a couple nights. Uh, man on the couch. Yeah. He was cool as fuck, though, John. He was cool. I liked him. He could have stayed all the time. He was, like, such a nice, easygoing kid. But all of a sudden, man, like, I'd never done cocaine in my life. Um, and I'm coming home. I don't want to be around it. Weird, sketchy people are coming to the house buying drugs. He's trying to keep me ab abreast. So he's like peeking my door open, right? Putting like mounds of cocaine on my desk. I'm ripping them, running the music block. Music block's taking off. And uh, I had this weird moment one night where the kid that I was, it was like three kids living in my house. And the kid that I was, it was a Coke dealer, was like, yo, can you drive me to pick up tonight? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm driving him. And we pull into the projects in Richmond. And I'm like, oh, fuck. This is not good. Projects in Richmond are bad. And mm -hmm. it's like 1 a.m. I don't know if I was really just strung out. I don't know if I was clear-headed. Probably not. But it felt like I had sat there for like 45 minutes and he hadn't come back. And I was like seeing shadows around me and shit. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, he's sketchy. Did he not pay somebody? Did he get off? Did they fuck him up? Are they going to say who drove you? Are they going to look for your car? I started freaking out all this moment. And it was like a moment where I literally looked at my rear view and I like looked at myself and I was like, what the fuck are you doing? I had this whole sort of shattering moment. He comes back, all's good. He got his fucking big ass thing. But I went home that night and I was like, bro, I'm going to die or go to jail. One of the two. So uh, I fucking bought a plane ticket to California the next day. And uh, for 11 days later, sold everything I owned. I had an Audi A4. It was like probably worth 13 grand. I sold it for two grand in cash. Dumb. Stupid. Dumb. Stupid. Yeah. I just yeah. Money, You're not bro. a CEO entrepreneur. Never mind. Stupid fucking money, dude. And uh, um, and then had some extra cash in my pocket. Decided to uh, had like probably eleven hundred bucks. About six days before I was supposed to go, I decided to uh, take a Greyhound to Oswego, New York, for a booty call. Oh, my God. And I spent like 600 of those dollars. It was a fantastic booty call. I yeah, that must, have, that must be some fire <laughs> cheeks. She, she was bad, dude. Fuck? She was bad. Some fire cheeks. And, uh, but it was dumb. And then anyways, I got on the flight. My mom dropped me off. She's crying. Like, what are you going to do if you run out of money, Wade? I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. Ma, I'll sleep in Venice. I don't care. <laughs> and uh, I get here, start cashing in on my blog relationships because like, I had known a lot of publicists and these people and helped digital marketers for festivals and shit. And I got an internship at one of like Mark Cuban's many subsidiary companies. And what was amazing about it was 
what I realized was like, yo, all I had to do was put myself in a position where I didn't have influence on drugs or it, it accessibility, and I was fine. Mm-hmm. So got this internship. They paid me a $400 stipend. Uh, I spent 300 of it on a, room, on a bed in a, th- in a room with two other dudes at the men's tennis house at UCLA. <laughs> Ran out of money. Called my sister, who was playing soccer at Coastal Carolina at the time. Said, hey, please don't call mom. Please don't tell mom. I'm out of money. I need a pizza. She said, tell me where you want. College campus, they got big-ass pizzas. She shifts me a pizza. I freeze the pizza slices. Uh, I'm, like, rationing a pizza slice a day. <laughs> Like, oh, my God, I got four more days in this apartment, and I don't know what I'm going to do after. And uh, one day I show up on Facebook, and there's a status. It says, and I friended a lot of these managers in dance music to try to get interviews. Mm -hmm. And Jake and Nathan, who managed Corella, had turned me the fuck down. I said, no. There's a status from Nathan that said, need an intern for two weeks for Corella's album launch. And in all caps, it said, must be L.A.-based. I was like, damn, bro. Like, I've seen that so many times in Virginia and wish that could be me. That'll be the name of my book one day, Must Be L.A. Based. I ended up meeting him in Hollywood that night, like riding my bike, putting it on a fucking bus, bus driver to get out, put it on the bus because I'd never done that before. Met him in Hollywood, started the next day. He said, I can't pay you for these two weeks, but I'll buy your food while you're on the job. And I said, dear Jesus, like, <laughs> all I need to do is eat, bro. Uh-huh. <laughs> All I need to do, and look. The Where were you sleeping after the four days? <clears throat> well, we'll get there. Okay. We'll get there. So, oh, man, this is a good story. Hey, you got to drink. You keep taking little, like, yeah, you got to, like, there you oh, go. He called you out. Damn. You wearing a wig and calling me out? He, like, tosses it in his mouth to fake drink it. After you tell the story, you're spinning the wheel. I'll spin the wheel. So, I get this job with Nathan, and the Cruella Rivers were a running. They're the two biggest female DJs in the world. Chris was a part of their group at the same time. And, uh, bruh, I'm eating $20 breakfast, $40 lunches, $60 dinners. I never had Thai. I never had pho. I never had any of this shit, bro. Like, none of it. I'm like, what is this? I'm fucking eating. I'm like, I'm a king. This is amazing. I'm fucking flying on a private jet to Vegas with them, right? And I was chewing tobacco at the time because I'm southern as fuck. And I couldn't. I was like on this plane, this PJ one time, and I'm like, bro, I literally, we could land in Vegas, and I have not enough money in my pocket to go get a can of chewing tobacco and a Gatorade, but I'm on a PJ. How <laughs> fucked up is that? <laughs> Crazy. Not, that screams LA to me. I don't know why. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. My mom's like, I just selling drugs. Are you sure? You're on a private jet? I'm like, nah, like, what are you thinking? And uh, man, that was the start of, I didn't have really any other option but to work hard. I, I was working with Nathan. I credit Nathan incredibly with my ability to talk to artists and understand, you know, what it means to, to channel, like, real art mm-hmm. and, and where it comes from, the truth that it comes from. And then I started hanging with Jake, who was a savage marketer, a savage businessman. I would put my money on Jake over anybody in the music business any day of the fucking week. Mm-hmm. Nectar. Any right? business. Yeah. So Jake start, I started showing Jake what I knew on the blog. I didn't even know what I knew. And I'm like, hey, here's the data. I'm like, Jake, I can show you how you can say this wall is blue three different ways, and this way will have 100 times more people pay attention. And Jake was the person that was like, yo, bro, you know something. Mm-hmm. So he hired me as the first employee. Around the same time, David brought Zoo to the table. I heard some Zoo records and was like, this is amazing. And 
we went on that run. Yeah, but real quick, the zoo thing is really interesting because of what was happening in the dance music industry, which was, it was like very Vegas. It was Steve Aoki throwing cakes. Explain that because that's where you guys found the sauce and you really like cut through. Well, and you had ex- I, it was explosive. I, I have to credit Zoo because, of course, of course, because one, he made look, Zoo tried this thing called 52 to Zoo and it didn't work. But it was what, in, what was it? He put out a song a week for, 50, for, for a year. Damn. And we'll get back to that later because that caused me a lot of pain. But he was making music that just like, it sounded like Dead Mouse, And mm-hmm. it was like, yo, this takes a lot of talent to make it sound like Dead Mouse, but it's not unique. And he got, I think he got really sad. And he kind of went to a dark place and probably met David around the same time. I don't know that whole story, but he made some shit that like came from the heart and was like different. And when I heard it, I was like, man, like this is fire. Like house music was starting to become a little bit more commercial. And, uh, and, you know, Jake was like, you like this? And I'm like, yeah, man, I love it. And he's like, okay. And Zoo started coming over, and I was really infatuated with the way that he thought about branding. And I'll never forget, you know, he said, look, bro, I don't know what I want, but I, I don't want people to know I'm Asian. And my white ass from Virginia, I grew up with no culture. There were whites, Mexicans, and blacks. We were pretty much segmented except for the sports fields. And I'm like, dude, I don't understand it. He's like, look, bro, you're not going to offend me, but, like, be real. When you look at an Asian, you don't think of a creative. You think of an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer. Who do you look at that's Asian and say they're a great artist? Like, not Steve Aoki. Like, maybe David Cho is the only one. And I'm like, damn, bro, like, I feel that. I feel that 100%, which led to the anonymity. The anonymity wasn't some marketing scheme that we thought up. It was Zoo, it was really like Zoo having the audacity to understand perception. And we built it off of that. And what I knew was because I had fucking written about every single dance music artist that had blown up, I knew how to tell a story. I knew exactly what words to say. And Jake had the access, because of Corella to every single dance music blog. So I said, Jake, if you got the access, I know what to write. And he said, I'll get you access. And I had, I wrote every, I wrote Billboard articles, I wrote Rolling Stone articles. They, they, they got tired of me telling them exactly what to write, so they just gave me the login info. Damn. And I was just writing the zoo articles and really like concocting how to p- position this to the world. And that was a wild run. We, uh, yeah, we, we broke uh, the first ever independent and anonymous dance artist in history in six months who got nominated for a Grammy. And it was just a great team. It was great. Everybody was on the same page. It was artistic. It was true. Um, we were every single night sitting. I was sitting there with Zoo till like 3 a.m. talking about absolutely fucking nothing. But like you'd, get one, you'd find one thing in a week of talking about nothing that meant everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, yeah, I was just like, I don't know. I was young and, yep. and I was like, man, this is, this is incredible. Like I'm not a drug addict bathing his grandma working at Maggiano's anymore, you know? And so we went on that run. It was amazing. I met Gallant, saw Gallant play one night and I said, this is what I want to do. It's who I want to work with. And Jake said, okay, well you can manage Gallant. And uh, I was not equipped at the time to do it, but I did it. You as an artist manager, you as all the experience that you've had breaking multiple artists, 
what would you say are non-negotiable qualities that somebody should have as an artist in 2021, right? Great question. Um, three of them, three of them. Three, three non-negotiables. Uh, one, you better be down to work. Like, you, you, you better be down to work harder than the people that are, you're hiring to work for you, truthfully. And every artist I ever worked with that was successful did. Zoo worked his fucking ass off. Gallant worked his ass off. Corella worked their asses off. Like, they worked. What's right? the definition of working your ass off? Because a lot of times artists think it's, oh, I should just make the music. It's, it's making the music. It's showing up, being down and open to like whatever comes, a, 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 you know, there. It's like, it's like living the life, man. Like Zoo came over every single night till like 3 a.m. Like he wasn't doing anything else. Like he mm -hmm. wanted it, you know, like he wanted to figure it out. He wanted to make sure that the shit was right. He wanted to make sure it was connected, you know, and he really pushed me. Like I look at someone like Zoo. Like, Zoo made me better, you know? Like, Zoo, Zoo was, you know, he would, he would I think I, I would, like, think of some amazing shit. And he'd be like, that's cool, but, like, here's the problem. And I'd be like, fuck you, but you're probably right. And then, you know, with G, like, I was telling Gallant the other day, I was reflecting on what the, the biggest things my artist taught me. Zoo, in, in, in the time and space in my life, for what I was a part of, based on what I had been through taught me that anything's possible. I was like, oh my God, I can be a part of something that is huge. Anything's possible. Gallant taught me that trust is the most valuable thing between an artist and a manager because he got to a point where the only person in the world that he would blindly close his eyes and say, if you say, if you, if you say it's okay, I'm okay with it, would give me that trust. And I, I value that to this day. It's probably why we're still best friends, you know? Um, and then the main squeeze, who I look after now, you know, taught me, uh, reminded me to have fun and taught me about the environment and the family of, of, of things. So, uh, yeah. So what would you say are kind of some of your big gripes with the music industry? And what do you think? Because to be honest, also, as much as there's gripes and the way that the structure is set up, there's technology. You want to hear my, is that interesting to hear my thoughts? You want to hear my thoughts on that? Yes. Like what, what is, what is wrong with the music industry? Well, the first thing that's wrong with the music industry is that we're still dealing with a, a structure that was built on the exploitation of black music in a time where segregation, racism, all existed, right? Black music is the epitome of every genre that we know. Mm -hmm. It all came from that. Blues music, roots music, jazz, right? What's jazz? People say, what's jazz? Jazz is not defined. Jazz literally, quite literally, was created when the best players in the world were black guys that weren't allowed into white clubs. So they would go up into the white clubs and they would play wrong, but still better, right? Story of Muscle Shoals. In, in like the 60s and the 70s, Muscle Shoals, Alabama had the best rhythm section in the world. Rolling Stones would come in. The Beatles would come in. They'd fly to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. They would take these guys' songs, right? And they would want to go to lunch in the middle of a session. And they couldn't take the black guys to lunch and sit at the same fucking tables. The business is built on a model that is a capital model. This is an investment, a capital investment company, not a music company. And I'm not mad at that. 
just to call it what it is, right? Like, I run a record label now. I understand the, the numbers behind this shit. We're trying to do it better. But, like, I understand when I put X amount of money out. But let's be honest. The deals are 8416 royalty deals. Meaning, if I sign you, okay? I sign you an 8416 deal and I give you a $100,000 advance and I spend $100,000 on marketing. It's 200 grand in the hole, right? Mm-hmm. You have to make back five times that $200,000 to get out of the hole. Damn. Because when the dollar comes in, 84 cents, I'm the label, is going to my pocket. Mm-hmm. That's not going to recoup your balance. Your balance is being recouped out of your 16 cents. Oh, no. Nah. So that 84 cents is coming into my pocket. Now, here's where it gets crazier. Okay. Oh, it's a, it's it's a br- brilliant model. What? Here's where it gets crazier. When Napster, Jeff Bezos when shit. Napster and shit came around, music business was scrambling, saying, oh, my God, we're losing so much income. So they built a 360 model, right? So we're going to take 10% in our deals now of every other revenue stream of an artist, merch, touring, yada, 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 right? A record label could give you $30,000 in tour support, meaning they pay you to go on tour because they think it's promotional, Right? And they take 10% of your touring revenue of festival play after that. That 10% doesn't go to recoup your, your tour support. It doesn't go to recoup your, your royalties on music. It goes straight into their pocket. So th- they literally cannot lose. There's a woman from Harvard named Anita Elberies that wrote a book called The Blockbuster Effect. It's spot on. Record labels work on this model. We sign 10 artists. We spend a ton of money on all 10. Nine fail, we still make enough money off those nine, and then the one out of the ten gets so big it covers the spread and more. Oh, man. And it's not, it's not healthy. It, it, strangle, it strangles the creators. It's a super predatory-like system, honestly. Like, it, it's an antiquated model of old white men exploiting blacks, mm-hmm. truthfully. Absolutely. Yeah, damn, dude, I didn't know any of this. Like, you're like Nobody blowing knows. my mind right Nobody now. Nobody knows. Yeah, unless you're in the music industry. And it's nuts. And they do a great job of hiding that because like, how the fuck did I not know that? And you know what? Guess what? Guess what? I want to pay. I'm a manager, right? Uh-huh. So my job is to take care of my artists, right? And I would love to pay photographers, creatives, engineers. I'd love to give engineers credits, you know, percentage of the master on songs. I'd love to pay creatives more. But when I'm paying a creative and I know my artist already has to make back over five times when I'm paying that creative just to make it worth it, it's tough to do that, yeah. right? And now you're like penny pinching on other creatives and it's like creates this whole system. 100%. Yeah. So, so I think like theoretically, holistically, spiritually, you cannot tell me that a change in that model that positively influences creatives across the board, designers, illustrators, writers, engineers, whatever you will, if you give them more, that world becomes better. Mm-hmm. It becomes stronger. It becomes more of a reality for, for an actual life mm-hmm. that they can live, and it lifts up the entire industry. And it draws better that. talent. 100%. Like, yeah. 100%, right? What, what if we paid doctor shit? Mm-hmm. You'd have shitty doctors. I agree. I fucking agree with that. Mm. Another, another thought I had, too, is it's, like, it's kind of like a content rat race. Like This doesn't necessarily have to do with the music industry, but... It's an attention game. You gotta hold people's attention all the time. And art musicians aren't necessarily content creators. There's now a hybrid though. There's the Lil Nas X's. There's these uh, Lil Huddies, right? They just like they have audience. How do you feel about that, right? Like a lot of times, 
a music label is just going to pick somebody that can also manage the, like, hold the fan base because it... Because it's a venture capitalist firm. Because they have to hedge their investment, right? Um, Where is the ability for, like, real art to poke through? Or do you think that it's like, yo, you kind of got to be a hybrid nowadays? It's really hard. It's Frank Ocean's are one in a zillion. Yeah, I mean, real art is, is relative, you know? Uh, I think if you want to play the game... You got to step on the field and you got to swing the bat. And that's what it is. You know, if, if you really want it, if you're an artist and you're saying, I'm going to pursue one of the most ridiculous ideas of a life that you could, you better be prepared to play the game. Truthfully, you better be prepared to play the game or you just better be fucking great. Like super great. Like Frank Ocean, great. Bonnie Vera, great. That shit doesn't come around. That's so it? rare. That's one in a zillion. What was the stat? 80,000 songs are uploaded to Spotify a day. 80,000 songs because anybody can do it. Imagine Damn. you trying to wake up one day and be an artist. Like, I actually how do you think, cut through the noise? I actually think that like, you know, there's a duality in life. With every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I think that today's structure is simply going to breed uh, a, a flurry of independent record labels that have fairer deals, that actually develop artists, and that end up licensing to majors or things like that. And because they license to majors, they're able to control the deals that they do with majors, right? Um, I think that that's the, the, the future model. And you look at it, right? It's all cyclical, right? Like when, when alternative music is coming back with a vengeance, hip hop, dance music, it's gonna fucking go, it's gonna go down. I promise you, it's still gonna make money. But uh, indie rock, alternative rock, 90s alternative, that wave is coming back as we speak. Yeah, why? I've been big on that. I don't know why. Like I've literally like yeah. transitioned back to that. Why? Because punk. Because. Thank you. Yes. They tried to do a little half toss. Get out of here, bro. I, drank, then, I had three nectars on my way here. Three. While you're driving. No, I didn't drive. He, he <laughs> two blocks away. I don't <laughs> drive, bro. Um, because. The spirit of punk music, which is also rooted in jazz and rooted in fucking black culture, truthfully, uh, is one that is against the system. It's cyclical. And that general mindset and spirit of music is one that is against the system. I love that. I hey, but but and punk music too. changes. Today's punk is not going to be always like oh, it's you, you, John Dawson. is punk. Yeah, hundred percent. John Dawson, like this fucking this this kid making like indie rock music. Black kid making indie rock music. Like shit's fucking wild. Kenny Mason, like that's this today. Is punk. That's today's music. Or? That's punk, dude. Okay, yeah. I don't know those artists. That's what I'm saying. Are they like like they're out today or they're old? Punk punk is just uh, uh, none no, of those specific artists that you named. Yeah. Okay. So I'm yeah, gonna listen to them. How does an artist catch your attention and get signed to an independent record label like you? Boom. Exactly. That, that's just what uh, I mean. That's a great question. Um, one, it starts with great music. Any day of the week, the music's got to be great. I'm not here to lie to people. And I know one thing about myself that, like, in comparison to most people in this business, I know that I love music more than almost any of them. Okay? I will listen to and love and support a bluegrass album. I will listen to and support an abstract orchestral album. I just love music. And there's a place for all of it. Is there a scale for all of it? I don't know, but there is a place for all of it. Now, the music's got to be great. Step one. 
If it's not, I'm not interested. Like, you know, like nobody wants to sell beater shit, you know, like you guys are sitting here at Nectar refining your shit over and over, right? You're coming into the marketplace with, uh, with an angle and an angle that's rooted in a truth and a, and, a, and, a, and a passion for an experience in your life that you wanted to correct, right? Like there is like, there's a heart in it. And I just try to find the heart in it. And I also try to find like, yo, I'm not saying your shit has to be polished and, and hits. Like I, I work with a band out of Salt Lake City called the Crooked Kings and they're making indie rock, right? The scene in Salt Lake City is incredible. I moved to Provo for three months just to be around Salt Lake City. And I had to ask myself, why is Salt Lake City, why is this indie rock you know, scene blossoming out of Salt Lake City? And I, and I had this realization. It's the only white culture in America that is, that it's punk. Why, <laughs> why, right? In Salt Lake City? Yeah, and I'm gonna tell you why, right? Mm -hmm. You're first generation Korean American, right? Mm -hmm. As are you, right? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, y you are both um, probably going against some of the contemporary ideals of your parents in the things that you choose to do, right? And that's mostly happening with marginalized communities, truthfully. My girlfriend is Indian, right? And she's experiencing this thing where, like, you know, she's breaking out of the norms and the things that the pressures that her family puts on her for being Indian and, and, and their, their culture. In Salt Lake City, there's the, there's the largest Mormon community in America. And for the first time ever, it's, it's, it's these kids going on their Mormon missions, having their phone in their hand and all the information in the world and realizing there's a big world and they're leaving. They're leaving their missions. They're, they're rebelling against this idea and that's bleeding into the music. And it's fantastic. And these, this, so this band you were talking about, they were Mormons that left. So it's five guys. It's five guys. Three of them grew up Mormon. One of them defuncted really early. Two of them went on their missions. Uh, and both, uh, the two of them that went on their missions left their missions early, right? And they're in this point of life where they're exploring a world and a freedom that they had never expected, right? Well, like drugs and sex and all the just normal things? Sure, sure, 100%. Because like the what? first time you have sex blows your mind. You're like, what the fuck? Well, I mean, it lasted for me about 0.6 seconds. Yeah, but it's the best 0.6 seconds of your life. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Hopefully you get a second chance, right? Yeah, you get another 0.12 seconds. <laughs> um, yeah. One star? 1.2 seconds, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I like to look at the experiences of people and their culture and whatever it is and be like, man, like, what are they trying to say? And this band from Salt Lake, so many people overlooked it. I heard this song, 96 Subaru, and it, for, it made me feel like I was in Hollister in seventh grade again, and it smelled like hella perfume, and I was listening to Snow Patrol chasing cars for the first time. My know that exact feeling. My, the guys at my record over here. The, right? the guys at my record label, I love them to death, and they trust me because I, I run A and R, and I, I really bring the songs in. So wait, we don't we don't hear it, but like they're maximal guys. They want to get slapped in the face with bangers. Ninety six Subaru was a floater, but it was beautiful. Define and a floater real quick. A song that, a song that, creates a a mood and a moment 
and a feeling rather than tries to say like, hey, look at me. Mm. And it nails it. Mm. And, and I felt something from that. And I connected with them. And we'll go on the TikTok side, right? Because mm -hmm. so often TikTok is considered this place where you can't be true, right? It's this bastardized level of social media. Mm -hmm. And all we asked of this band was we said, look, show up and, and TikTok once a day. I don't give a fuck what you do. We'll be here. We'll try to help guide you, give you ideas. But all I'll ask from you and all I can ask from any artist is just be consistent and do what we ask. Because if you can do that, it means you trust us, A. And if you can do that, we're working our asses off every day. They did it. We promised them. We said, 40 days, you'll blow up on TikTok. Took them 69. 69 days. <laughs> on but the 69th day, right, we're recording their album in St. George, Utah, okay, in a Mormon home. The Mormon home had photos of every president it was the weirdest fucking place. There was a green shag carpet downstairs, right? And we take this shitty-ass clip of them doing a Pixies cover drunk late at night. We wake up the next morning, there's 4.5 million views on the Pixies cover. They start getting added to Spotify playlist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and it kind of all went from there. And then they found their fucking pocket. They did like seven videos in a row that did a million plus. Um, they made great music. The music wasn't made for alternative radio or anything like that. It was just amazing. And guess what? Their demo, when you go on their, their insights, 93% women, ages 17 to 24. They're the biggest goofballs in the fucking world. But over any artist I've ever worked with, it's all fucking girls and hot girls their DMs blow up. I'm like, screw you guys. Like, what's going on? We sold three shows straight out in Salt Lake City. They just got added to the fucking festival in Salt Lake. They're at 110,000 on, on TikTok. And their songs are growing. Their save rates are absolutely astronomical. No one's paying attention to this band. No one understands. But when you understand music and you listen to music and you love music, you realize, oh, what happened the last time that alternative music popped off? Bands like The Fray, The Starting Line, mm. right? These bands blew without radio because of the style of music and the, what, the things that they were saying. And guess what? Those bands today, Snow Patrol, tour the United States. They haven't put out a song in fucking years. Tour the United States, sell 5,000 tickets in every city, right? They're breaking off of Sinks, Young Adult Shit, Outer Banks, you know, uh, Euphoria, whatever mm -hmm. you will. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in that shit. I'm interested in that shit. We're recording, baby, yep. and welcome to the Wheel of Fun. All right, give it a spin and whatever it lands on. Um, oh, that was a, come on. You got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. Here we go. Oh. Yo, it's straight oh. up. Why does it always land on that? Because it's weighted. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> feel exposed. I cannot wear my shirt. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, How slow as I thought it would be. Have you ever done a shotgun before? For people who have done it really quickly? Yes. Three Ooh. seconds. Yes, yes. Ooh. No, Liam's four seconds. Liam's lunch, Liam's said, well, Everybody says open your throat, but I don't understand that concept. Nah, this is, shotgunning makes the, the chugging thing like non-existent. Like as long as you're just pulling nonstop, people just feel pain, I think, and they slow down. Or they give up. <laughs> you just have to not give a fuck that you're in pain. All right, ready? And three. And then you got to start counting the one all Mississippi. Right, right. Three. No, you can't count till I fucking crack and it hits my lips. Okay. All right, ready? All right. Three, two. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi. Oh, oh. hey, hey, pour it, pour it, lift it up. Let's see, let's see how. Glug, 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 okay. That was a few glugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta say, I was slightly disappointed. I'm disappointed myself. You're not gonna beat, you you didn't beat Mr. Lunchbox, Uh but maybe next time. All right, so Liam, you still hold the title? Yep. Oh, yeah, here's the towel. So unnecessary. Was it so? You live two blocks away, so you can just crawl right into bed, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So um, we got like you know 10, 15 minutes left, and Wu Talk's got a lot of great questions for yeah, you. Yeah. So come, we're gonna come, f- come scoop back this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get in here. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Get myself together. Take it. Take. Give yourself a second. Do you know where you are, sir? Huh? Do you know where you are, sir? Yeah. <laughs> just messing with you. Call for city, baby. Hey, uh, should we make him do the uh, the? You know, touch your nose. We should get around. going on this podcast, though. What do you, what do you drink Absolutely. and get weird? Yeah, 100%, bro. Okay. Is He's he, kinda is he a, a drinker or like? Uh, yes. Hey, are yeah. you a, I didn't know you were a Galan fan. I know his songs. Like, like wow. when he said the name, I was like, wow. I actually like have you know, his song saved on Spotify. You know that he is a, they call him Godlant in Korea. When we I, show I up, know that he has a huge following in Korea. When we show up in Seoul, mm. they have to take us, people line up at the airport, they have to take us out the back doors. Mm. It's nuts, bro. Yeah. And in Mexico, he's Gallant. Really? I had, a, I had a, I knew his type of music would be big in Korea because I don't know if you've ever listened to like K, like R and B or like, like, like those Korean ballads Dean and, shit. and shit. Dean. I love Dean. I think they have the oh, same Dean's vibe. The best. Lyrics. I love Dean. Dean was actually the music that got me back into Korean music. So we did when we went there. We we, we were really strategic in the marketplace, but. We did a, a song with Eric Nam and Tablo. Ooh, I know Eric Nam too. And we did a four-page spread in Vogue mm-hmm. for it, and then we brought Lehigh, Eric Nam, and Tablo out to Valley Rock, right? Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget it. First of all, Galant speaks fluent Japanese. What? Dude. Why? I'll tell you why. Okay. So he grew up in the suburbs of Maryland, mm-hmm. and he was one of the only black kids in the school. Can and I guess real quick? He watched Mad Anime. So, okay. because he was one of the only black kids, he was kind of marginalized. Mm-hmm. And he started hanging out with the Asian kids who were mm-hmm. also marginalized. Mm-hmm. He fell in love with a, with a girl who was Japanese. Mm. So, he decided to start taking Japanese classes in high school so he could, you know, finesse this girl. Yep. He fell in love with anime. I mean, the kid could tell you every single fucking bit of any anime movie Man. ever. Right? All right, you, just, you just made me a super fan. So listen, I'm going to start listening to his music listen, more. He goes to fucking, he goes to NYU, graduates in three years, takes Japanese at NYU as well. And when we blew him up in Korea, right, it was like Valley Rock Festival, uh, and I knew how much it was bubbling. When we got Valley Rock, I asked his agent, can we get Fuji Rock, too, outside of Tokyo? Agent comes back and says, hey, they just don't think, you know, the record label's working it here, and they don't see any draw that he brings. So I sent a four-paragraph email back, and pretty much what I said was, one, he speaks fluent Japanese, and his dream is 
he's never been to Tokyo. He wants to come to Tokyo. So at the very least, get the fucking kid to Tokyo. <laughs> second of all, second of all, if you can find a black dude on the entire planet with a voice like his that also speaks fluent Japanese, I'll pay you <laughs> money. It was in the email. I did not, I sent it to our agent, who's, my, who's our homie. I didn't think he would forward that exact email. He forwards that exact email to the promoter. We get an offer, but you play the first set on this stage. I'm like, okay, fine. Gon's like, dude, I don't give a fuck. I just want to go to Tokyo, bro. So we show up in Tokyo. We got lucky at, 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 at Fuji Rock because it started to rain, and his set happened to be in the only tented area. Oh, man. So the whole festival comes to this tent, okay? This mo- 10,000 people. I mean, this is like Coachella deep. This motherfucker steps on stage and only speaks Japanese between his sets, and you'd think that people would be freaking the fuck out. They were silent. They could not believe it. He finishes his set. The promoter, the, the buyer from fucking Running Man or whatever it was, I'll never forget. He finishes his set. It's wet everywhere. I see this fucking little Asian dude running. Okay? And he runs up on the stairs, hits a wet spot, slips, busts his ass, pops back up and runs up to me. He's like, when can we have him again? And I'm like, I told you. I fucking told you. But we also told Valley Rock, they said, you're going to be second to close on the main stage. So who's after us? He says, Cigaros. I love Cigaros, but I'm not going to bitch about being before Cigaros, but maybe I feel this energy. And maybe you should hit up. If I was Cigaros' manager, I would want to know. I don't know if it's a good idea for Cigaros to play after us. And our agent's like, wait, wait it's Cigaros. I'm like, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> We step on stage, bring out three massive fucking Korean artists, fire cannons, hundred and sixty thousand people. Mm-hmm. We finish our set, Cigaros comes on, maybe a quarter of the crowd stayed for Cigaros. Damn, oh, crazy, bro. I don't know. I don't know who Cigaros is, by the way. Fair. You're never gonna get the Cigaros collab. I'll tell you that. Definitely not gonna happen. Yes. Yeah, I actually tried. I wanted to get it. Yeah, and he said nope. Yeah. Um, you had some questions. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. This is going back to like our first topic of conversation. You talked about liking psychedelics a lot. What was like your craziest trip and on and what was it on? This man an old soul. He just took a deep hit of the vape and looked up into the sky. It looked sky like, like he was just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Smoke some DMT real quick. Let it loose. I got three stories, man, because they're all a little bit different. Good. Okay, let's start with one. Okay, the first time I smoked DMT. Well, there's, there's sort of four stories. Uh, okay. I was once in high school, and I was at a pregame to a football game, and I was like one of the kids in the like, student section that was always raging. And right before I go to the student section, I smoke a bowl with these sketchy kids in the corner. In my, you know, our high school surrounded by cows and cornfields. And all I remember was the entire time feeling like my cheeks were 1,000 pounds apiece, and I couldn't <laughs> move in the student section. I still don't know what I smoked to that day. Then... One time in Richmond, I smoked DMT at a party. I was crawling around. It was really fucking wild. Um, in college, I snorted 2CI. I still don't know what went on in that moment in my life. I don't know how long or how short it was, but that was wild. But in, in terms of impactful psychedelic experiences, mm-hmm. um, honestly, man, like I've had a lot of them. I kind of, you know, I, I eat psychedelics maybe twice a year to kind of shake the cobwebs out truthfully my 
greatest psychedelic experiences have been with women that I have been dating at the time. Um, all of them seem to have given me a, a greater understanding of the person that I was in a relationship with, which sort of spoke volumes to all the relationships in my life. So I would say also ate like this crazy fucking acid tab, gel tab one time. A gel tab? Yeah, it was a little unnecessary, yeah, to be yeah. honest with you. But uh, I ate this fucking gel tab in the middle of the fucking woods with this girl. And uh, I just remember like going in these cycles of like, man, I feel like I'm like going through like the, in the same motions over and over and over again. And at one point I was like, I got to take a piss. So I went to the fucking bathroom and I went to take a piss and I look in the mirror. And I think I spent like 20 minutes in that mirror. And I remember looking in that mirror and seeing myself with wrinkles as an old man. And had this really profound experience looking at myself as an old man because I felt like I was judging myself at the end of my life. And I questioned so many things about myself. And it sort of, it sort of leveled my own perception of myself. I felt like it was like the most humbling experience of my life because I, for like, I don't know, it could have been 10 seconds, it could have been four minutes. Like, I don't know how long I was looking in that mirror. But for some godforsaken reason, I was wrinkled in that goddamn mirror. And I spent however long that was feeling like what it felt like to be at the end of your life and think about all the things that you might think about at the end of your life. Mm. Yeah. Profound. I actually have a, a, a tripping mirror story as well that you just sparked in my mind. And, mm -hmm. and look in the mirror if you want, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall. What's Do your not story? look in the mirror when you're tripping on psychedelics, <laughs> by the way. That's like a big no-no. I didn't know that when I did this. But, uh, but yeah, I'm also a big, like, avid user of psychedelics. And the Amazing. first time I ever tried it alone was, uh, like, I took enough to, like, 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 to try to, like, trigger an ego death. And then, uh, so I took a bunch of mushrooms alone in my crib. What's a bunch? Like, multiple grams? Like, five grams. Okay. And it was super, it was the strongest mushrooms I ever had. And I knew I was, like, sitting there on the edge of my bed looking at it, like, I need to eat all of this. And I was, like, <laughs> Did you make I'm, it a certain I'm so way? scared. No, I just fucking ate them straight. Oh, goddamn. But, yeah, so, uh. So yeah, that, this was actually when I first blew up on TikTok and like my life was changing. Um, like wow. literally everything about my life was different. So I was like, hold up. I don't know if I can handle this correctly. Like I, like I use it in the same way you do, like a couple times a year. I like to like, you know, do it, kind of like see where I'm going to go in life. So I did it and it started, obviously it became a bad trip, right? Like if mm. you take that much mushrooms, you are not going to be happy with what you find. Uh, I go to the bathroom to wash my hands because I have to pee and I see myself in the mirror and for some, and I looked like myself, obviously, obviously I'm tripping and everything's different, but I looked like a demon, like, as in like my face was like, everything was moving as normal, but like, it wasn't that like, I physically looked like a demon, but I was looking at myself and I was like scared. It's about those eyes. Yeah. And it was like, holy shit. And I felt like while I was talking, like I was literally speaking physically, but the mirror wasn't moving the same way. So it felt like I was talking to a different person other than myself. Mm. I was tripping balls. Like literally I was bawling my eyes out crying five minutes before looking in this mirror. And because of like the tear streaks, it was like transforming in the mirror. And I, I just looked like a monster. And then right there, I somehow That's managed beautiful. to like confront every part of me that was like toxic. That's beautiful. Because it, it like manifested in this demon version of myself in the mirror. It was like Naruto when he was fighting the, in the, I don't know if anyone here watches Naruto. <laughs> you, you feel like in that moment you fell in love with yourself a little more? No, I hate him. I was trying to like, I was fucking screaming at the mirror alone in my crib, screaming at the mirror like, holy shit. And I felt like a dis 
for some reason, I felt like a huge disappointment to my parents. Like all this crazy shit, even though it was like the most successful moment but it's in like, the like same my recent thing, life. Though. Right? Like, what? it's the same thing. Like, the moment that you hate yourself yeah, is the moment that I you agree. love yourself, right? Yes. Because when I finished my trip, I, like, bro, in this trip, I fucking texted my best friends who, like, had lent me money and, was and like, Venmoed them, like, what I owed them right there. Like, because, like, and then my reason was, I'm like, because if I died today, like, I would have been known as a fucking scumbag who, like, <laughs> cheated on his girlfriend and owed his friends money. And I was like, and then I sent them money. And they're like, bro, are you okay? Like, do you need me to come to your crib right now? Like, so what, before was, you did the TikTok like, shit, you was, you was struggling a little bit in life? No, no, they let me money to help me with the, with the, with my business i started my business while i was bartending and like i like you know i like i always like to bite off more than i can chew so that it puts me into like a kobe mode when when the time comes to pay the bills you know what i'm saying because then like i owe like you know fourteen thousand dollars to a factory in china i'm like fuck how the fuck am i gonna make this suddenly i'm in i'm in the mode of i need to make money at any cost any way and then i always do it so i do that to myself it's very unhealthy and i'm gonna try to stop doing it but like that's what I did. I ended up borrowing money from them. They lent it to me, and in that moment, I was just like, "Holy shit, I'm a piece of shit." Like, right. you know, well, nothing I do is right. Blah, can blah, I blah. can I say one thing though about psychedelics though? Like you just said, you did it in your room and you had a cell phone around you. I really believe it's about set and setting, and you could have had those realizations and not of an intense way, still got the same thing out of it. And dude, I swear to God, trust, trust. So, uh, yeah, I, I just believe that like. Doing that intensely, put yourself in the right environment, you'd have the same thing. I agree. Yeah. This is what I think psychedelics are. Psych- uh, Carl Jung, like this, like yeah, this, yeah, he's the best. He said he said that when somebody asked him about psychedelics, what his opinion is, he said, "Be careful of unearned wisdom." Mm. So it's like a it's like a time skip, you know what I'm mm. saying? And that's why I like to use it sparingly. I don't like doing it all the time because it does feel like I'm learning too much too quick, and then it makes me you, depressed. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh huh. Is what I'll say to anyone. Be careful of getting lost in the sauce, yep. right? I've known so many kids who have, you know, when you eat psychedelics, it, 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 there's this danger of it becoming a dogma, mm-hmm. right? Of believing that what you are experiencing is truth. And it's mm-hmm. not truth. It's a re- revelation of truth, I think. And I think if you eat too much, you kind of remove yourself from the ground. Mm-hmm. And we all have to be on the ground. We're all human beings. Otherwise, you're separate from everything else. Uh, I have actually a wild story. Uh, One of the most impactful things that I ever experienced in my life was that uh, my uncle, my mom's brother, when I was five years old, uh, he was a massive drug dealer in the city of Richmond. Dyslexic, everything like that. Runs runs in the family? (laughs) I'm sorry, I had to... Yes! (laughs) No, I mean, seriously, the whole way my parents... Honestly, the way my parents were very strict, Uh and their whole thing was like, I hope you don't become like Bobby. Yeah, right. And then, of course, you become like him a little bit. But when I was like five years old, I remember this like whole sort of... um, This discombobulation in my family, and I would always like hear the conversations. I didn't have enough to process it, but when I was five, on my fifth birthday... My whole family's at my grandma Jerry's house. Shout out to my grandma Jerry where I lived for a while. And Bobby comes in. And I remember the, the, the thing from everyone being like, oh, 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 my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. My uncle had, my family had tried to get my uncle out of selling drugs. Mm-hmm. My uncle agreed to stop selling drugs. And my grandma had given him a bunch of cash to help him pay his bills because that's how he did it. His friends heard about it, tried to rob him. He was already a felon. And... My mom and my dad were dating at the time down in the city of Richmond. My dad was a, you know, my dad got drafted to play baseball. He was, a, he was a jock, but he was buying weed from my uncle. 
and my dad hunted and everything and, and knew Bobby had guns and said, Bobby, you're a felon. You shouldn't have these guns. Let me hold them. If you want to shoot them, I'll take you out. And Bobby got robbed one night, ran into the fucking uh, alley, shot up, ricocheted off a light pole, hit the getaway driver in the back of the head. The getaway driver happened to be a junkie who was also the heir of Bob's Big Burger, which is like a massive chain on the East Coast. And he got burned, got sentenced to first, uh, second degree murder, 25 years, right? Went to jail for 20, 20, got good time, five years. I never really understood what kind of drugs he sold. And a couple years ago, he got out. It was a huge thing for me because, like, I was living with my grandma, so I would get calls that were like, this is the correctional facility, Powhatan Correctional Facility. And I was like, what's going on? Nobody would ever tell me, right? My uncle gets out of jail, okay? And he was polyamorous and all this shit, right? Like, before. I like this guy. So my uncle gets out of jail, and I'm like, oh, man, like, this is finally a time to, like, have a conversation with my uncle about his life and shit. And I start talking to this motherfucker. Come to find out, my uncle was pressing acid tabs for the entirety of the East Coast. And my uncle got protected in jail because there were so many people in jail who had eaten my uncle's acid and had moments that changed their life. They would come up to him in his cell and be like, you're Bobby Mannix? He'd be like, yeah. They'd be like, yo, bro, I had your shit, Grateful Dead, fucking, fucking 97. That's the fucking And they protected him heard. because he fucking was ripping acid, bro. He's out of his mind, honestly. He yeah, got lost in the sauce. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, but pretty wild, dude. Dude, one of my best friends... I, I feel the loss in the sauce thing because one of my best friends who is honest is probably the smartest kid I know easily. He, he is lost in the sauce. Like I've watched him get lost in the sauce and, uh, and he's, he's opened my eyes to like some things that like he, I think everything I have today was inspired by him. Like mm. I started my business because of what I saw him do, all that shit. And now I watch him and you know he's nowhere near like his full potential. Like he is the smartest kid I've met in my age range, like my generations. Crazy. And he like... He just does regular shit, you know? And I'm like, fuck, like, you inspired me to do all this, and you're doing nothing. And I'm like, it, ma it makes me sad, but I'm like, you, you truly got lost in the sauce. It's so wild because I feel like people's experiences with, like, uh, a higher power of observing themselves come in all different forms, right? Like, mm -hmm. religion. I think religion is similar for some people to, to psychedelics. Mm -hmm. It's similar to, like, MITT, the, like, leadership, sh leadership shit, right? Like, Church. they all... Sure, they all have this, this greater experience that gives them some perspective on life, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, we have a surprise for you. I don't want to take any more shotguns. No, 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 no. We brought a special guest. We have a special guest, Talib Kweli. Oh, my God. No, sir. Be uh, fighting shit. words. I think he forgot. Be but, fighting words. But <laughs> what happened? What happened? Talib. I have rat beef. I've rap beef with one of the greatest rappers to ever live. We, uh, I need to hear that rap beef. So, first of all, I want, I want to make it known that uh, I grew up obsessed with Talib Kweli, mm -hmm. Black Star, Ghetto Gospel, all of his albums. I fucking loved him. I loved him. Had them all. I bought CDs of Talib Kweli, bro. Like, I was fucking rapping shit. My goddamn fucking MySpace captions and my AOL Instant Messenger fucking away messages were like Talib Kweli quotes, bro. Mm -hmm. Like... You know, like Rastafa. And uh, I was managing this artist named Steven who made this incredible song called Crossfire um, that, you know, to this day independently is one of my most, you know, proud moments because I put out a completely independent album. No major record labels, um, barely any fucking money. 
and his album to this day is probably 1.5 billion online. Damn. Billion? Uh, yeah. Is it a B? Yeah. A B. Big B. That's Big B. CEO entrepreneur. And I had this idea of, for Crossfire, his whole song was sort of Stephen. The song was about Stephen being this privileged kid from outside of D.C., coming to Los Angeles, seeing the world, eating psychedelics, and having this moment in his life where he was really shook up, honestly, couldn't make any music because he was like, why? Why was I born into privilege? What did I do to, to deserve this? And he struggled with that for a long time. So he made a song called Crossfire. And I wanted to do parts of Crossfire. And so I reached out to Talib Kweli. Talib Kweli and his manager hit me back and say, yeah, we're down to do this, $5,000. And I'm like, easy. Mm -hmm. His janky ass lawyer sends us a contract. I couldn't believe it at the time. It was equivalent to like if I gave if I sold you my pair of shoes, bro. Like it was like yo, straight up product. I have no rights to it in the future, no incentive, whatever. And like a stand-up businessman that I am, I believe that when people deliver work, they deserve to get paid. So we paid him very quickly on his work. Sent it to Steven. Steven goes, yo, bro. He didn't do anything I asked. Like he came in on the on the wrong beat. Like, I think we can get this right, but like, I need a little bit of work. So I hit up Talib and his manager. Manager loops Talib in. Talib goes, there will be no changes. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, you're both in L.A. Like, you can't get in the studio. He says, this is how it's intended. There will be no changes. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you signed the contract. We paid you five grand. So the song goes dead for like a couple months, two, three months. I actually kept coming back to it and being like, yo, it didn't, first of all, sound that bad to me, but like, it's not what Steven wanted. So I kept going back to Steven and saying, hey, man, like, is there any way we can get this to the point where it works? And Steven was like, well, yo, give it to Graham, producer homie of his. I bet Graham can get it right. Give it to Graham. Graham gets it right. Shit's a bop, right? <laughs> I made a mistake as a man. Not a mistake. I didn't have to do anything contractually, but I think spiritually... And looking back at it now, I wish I would have respected a creative a little bit more and hit him up before it came out. But we had the rights to remix the song, do anything we wanted the song, right? right? Like We could have put it out as he intended and then made a remix. Mm -hmm. But we didn't put it out as he intended. We just made a remix but put it out. Mm -hmm. I sent it to him. I have the craziest probably 35 fucking email chain with Talib Kweli. He says, fuck you take it down i said i'm not taking it down i'll redact i'll put it out and say you didn't we put it out not as you intended he's fuck you take it down and i sent him like a three paragraph thing yo talib you inspired me growing up i had all these fucking cds i know all your fucking lyrics i love you bro he goes i don't give a shit fuck you and i'm like okay well i'm not answering you anymore he finds my twitter starts tweeting at me tweets like at words by Wade is a fuck boy. If you're an artist, beware. Tells me, sending me fucking messages like if I find you. I said, find me, bro. Find me. For real. Like, you want to find me, we can let somebody tape it so at least we get a little bit famous. <laughs> but like, you don't, you don't want to tango with this. I promise you. I don't care, if you're, I don't care how big you are. Mm -hmm. And I had this whole fucking wretched public fucking dispute with Talib Kweli, who was quite literally one of the most influential artists for my development as a fan of music ever. And still to this day, I mean, he's like, I can't, I can't be around him. My name's Wade, 
not that many weights around. Mm-hmm. You know, like hey, I'm like, hey, I'm Wade. He's gonna be like, oh, you know. God damn. So here's the thing. We got to hear both versions of the song. I just feel like the people got to be, you know, they got to see what you did to the song and the original. The people got to vote. So you have the original, the original, original. Uh, yeah, somewhere deep in the fucking trenches. Mm. I want to hear the original. That song's got about 40 million fucking plays today. And yeah. he's getting 50, collecting 50 royalties? No. Because no. oh, you guys paid him flat out. Because he's yeah. a cheap ass, and he didn't get yeah. a real lawyer, and he didn't pay a fucking real lawyer to, to re, 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 you know, do his contract. And if yeah. he wasn't such a little prick, I'd probably give him royalties, honestly, because I think it's the right thing to do. But, but yeah, but he's beefing with you. Beefing with me. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I mean, boxing match? I'll box Tyler Quali any day of the week. <laughs> How big is he? Like, is, he, is he a big dude? Like, six what foot is eight. No. Uh, he's yeah, definitely he used not to play six. on the Raptors. Six, he's probably six foot something. Okay. I don't know. Have you ever met him in person? No. No? Hell no. Wouldn't you just hear that story? No, I thought you might have met him previously to that. <laughs> no, I I'm, I'm no. just kidding. That'd be but, hilarious. I mean, Talib is like super fucking, like, he's still a legend. Mm-hmm. You know, Anderson Pack does some shit with him. Most deaf, common. Like, all these people love him. So I'm like a little bit nervous because I represent artists in that adjacent R&B hip hop space. Mm-hmm. And I don't ever want to be kind of like called out for it. Yeah. But, uh,. But also fuck Talib Kweli. Yeah. <laughs> any, any last parting words? What do you What do you got to give out there to the to the internet? Whoever consumes this, the th- the the non-existent viewers that we don't have yet. It, I think at the end of the day, like if I can make it out of it, I mean I've overdosed twice in my life. Like I think if I can make it out of it, anyone can. And uh, also fuck. Opiates and <laughs> I thought you were about to say fuck Talib Kweli. <laughs> <laughs> I was ready. Fuck to... opiates, fuck uh, fuck Talib Kweli, <laughs> and uh, fuck my third girlfriend in the oh. world because she was a ter- <laughs> terrible girl. Wow, terrible whore. Yeah, fuck you. And fuck the music industry. No, just kidding. I, I love music. Just kidding. Yeah, Wade, I just got Wade, hurt. Wait out. Uh, I'm Wade Davis, and this is Jackass. <laughs> I haven't heard that so long. What the fuck? Uh, I'm Wade Davis, and I'm very under the influence. Yep, inebriated. <laughs>